These are dangerous days. To say what you feel is to dig your own grave. Remember what I told you. If you were of the world, they would love you. Sinead O'Connor penned those words. If it's been a minute since you've heard the song, take a moment and put it on now. And if it catches your heart the way it caught mine, then sit down and watch Catherine Ferguson's film, Nothing Compares. It is beautiful, elegant, and moving. The movie is structured around a few of the defining moments of Sinead's life, the ones we all remember. Tearing up the picture of the Pope, getting booed at Dylan's 30th anniversary concert, and the transfiguration of Bob Marley's iconic song, War, into the battle cry of a woman who etched her defiance, integrity, and rage into the world's consciousness. Our conversation details Catherine's strange and surreal journey toward making the film, the careful and delicate dance she did with her collaborators and subjects to get it done, and how the film accidentally became an elegy for Sinead. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Catherine Ferguson. Catherine, welcome to the show. So glad to have you on here. I thought it was such a uh, a beautiful, moving, and powerful movie. I'm, I'm grateful to have your time this morning. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's a thrill to be here. So tell me about kind of the origin story of how this ends up coming into the world and, and uh, you know, your, your path to this film. Well, it's quite a long-winded origin story, so bear with me. But um, really for me, as you can probably hear by my uh, my Irish brogue, I'm um, born and bred in Belfast in Northern Ireland. And I was very lucky that my dad, um, Sean, had introduced me to Sinead at a very young age um, when her first album, The Lion and the Cobra, first came out. He would have played it, blasted it even in the car as we drove around Belfast, often with the rain pounding the windows during this fairly uh, tumultuous during this fairly um, tumultuous time um, in Belfast. You know, it was, the the troubles were still very much rumbling on, and just having this music blasting in the car just made this um, big impression on me at this very young age. I think I was about uh, five or six when the Lion and the Cobra came out. And then in the early 90s, when I was in my early teens, um, I felt like I discovered Sinead for a second time. And this time it was with my my friends, my teenage Irish uh, friends. And we all could really see her and idolize her. And we're so um, proud of her that there was this icon from our own island out in the world, being a badass and doing all the things she was doing and obviously creating this amazing music. And really for me, I mention all of this because it was at that point that I really think the, the seeds for the film were sown um, because as a young teenager, uh, you know, with this uh, artist that we adored so much um, that, that that we'd find at this very um, important time in our lives was really only a year or so before the horrendous backlash began against her. So there was this person that we just looked up to uh, suddenly being absolutely lambasted across the world um, by the press and by anybody who wanted to have a go, really. And that, for me, created a huge dent on me as a young teenage Irish woman, because it was a very demoralizing um, thing to witness and kind of told me as an Irish woman where my place was and how not to uh, cross it, you know, and um 
So then, yeah, she just kind of stayed with me as somebody that I loved and didn't listen to any of the nonsense uh, that was being peddled about her. And I was always that person then in my late teens, early 20s, blasting Sinead at any party I'd go to and talking about how amazing she was. And then I went back and I actually did a master's in um, 2011. Um, I did like a, a kind of a film master's at the Royal College of Art in London. And as part of that master's, I had to make a short film as my graduation piece. And I decided for that piece, I would make a short called Mather, which is Irish for mother. And it was a short experimental visual film that was starting to try and unpick some of the feelings I had um, uh, around a lot of the themes that are actually have ended up being in Nothing Compares, which is namely um, uh, Ireland and its treatment of its women uh, historically. Um, and to, well, whilst making this short, I could think of nobody's music that I wanted more than Sinead's uh, to be part of this score. So I very cheekily reached out to her managers at the time as a student and said, this is what I'm doing. Do you reckon there's any chance I could get access to her stems because I'd like to deconstruct them? And yeah, he amazingly um, agreed to let me do that. So I made the short with her music and then I sent this back to them You know, when I graduated. And I can't remember if I heard immediately or not, but they did get back in touch about a year later and asked if I would direct her first music video in 15 years for her track, Fourth and Vine. So that was in 2013 and that's when I got to meet her. And I got to meet the team around her and I was then reminded of all of these very potent feelings that I'd had as a young Irish teenager. And the difference being at this point, instead of feeling powerless and demoralised, I was starting to work in film and I had a tool uh, that meant I could um, express myself and how I felt about all of this. And um, basically, um, that was the very, these are the very early seeds of Nothing Compares. It then took me another five years of talking about it to anybody that would listen and also working, you know, uh, beginning to work as a filmmaker throughout that period and working in uh, short documentaries. And I did a lot of music videos and advertising, uh, but I hadn't made a long form project. So it took the next five years of really, I suppose, uh, learning on the job. And I then met the film's um, co-writers and producers, Eleanor Emptage and Michael Malley in early 2018. And it was this meeting uh, with these guys that uh, really puts the wheels in motion. I met a team that were willing to take this on with me. And um, we, yeah, sorry, I'm running out of breath. <laughs> it's no, it's a, it's a, it's a absolutely beautiful origin story. So, so, so catch your breath and keep going. I'm riveted. <laughs> Let me stop this up. And then basically, so in 2018, yes, whenever I met Michael and Ellie, um, and I finally just had two people that were willing to get involved and try and bring this to life with me. Um, it was at that point then that I was able to go back to Sinead's um, team and her management and present like a one pager of an idea, this uh, idea that I've been bubbling up for so many years. Um, and luckily I'd kept a really good relationship with them throughout this period uh, leading up to it. Um, and it was a bit similar to 2011 where I felt I was being uh, rather cheeky, but I thought I'd go and just try my luck. And I sat down with John Reynolds, um, who ended up being our EP. 
and talked him through my intentions and why I felt this was a very important film to be made at this point. And that was in 2018. And John listened um, and he's amazing. And he gave me the, the time and he agreed. Yeah, he also felt that this was uh, an important time to finally look at this story. And I think a big reason for that was the timing because in early 2018, so much was happening, uh, not that it's not now, but the world was kind of on fire at that point, particularly with women using their voices to speak out. Uh, we'd had Me Too, Weinstein, and then back even in Ireland alone, um, we'd had, you know, this was a country that was seeing such huge seismic changes. We'd had our equal marriage referendum in 2018. Um, and then the year that I presented this idea to John in early 2018, as we were gearing up to our own abortion referendum in June of 2018. So there was a huge amount of noise and activism, um, but she wasn't really being mentioned in any of it. So I feel like that was why and how um, I I got through the door <laughs> with this with this concept. And also hopefully because he trusted me and we'd had this relationship prior um, but it really, that's where it all started. And he pretty much said, right, okay, go and see what you can do. And obviously we had like no funders, no backers, nothing behind us. It was my first feature. It was Michael's first feature. Ellie, um, the uh, co-writer and um, producer, Eleanor Entage, had just come off the back of the Vivian Westwood documentary that had launched at Sundance the year before and that had been her first film so we were quite a motley crew of um, you know of uh, we hadn't had much experience but we had a lot of passion and determination to make it well and it, and it and it worked absolutely beautifully so I want to go into some kind of some craft specific some some individual choices that you've made you've mentioned a couple times now the the writers that you worked with and I'm curious what that writer writing process is because everybody has their own kind of idiosyncratic approach to, you know, writing in documentaries is such an amorphous, yeah. ill-defined thing. You know, yeah. some of us do it in the edit bay. Some of us do it, you know, actually with writers. When you talk about working with writers, what what exactly does that mean in this case? And and sort of what are the contributions of, uh, of those writers and how do you structure it? Well, I say that their contribution was paramount. I mean, we, um, because we worked so tightly as a little team from the very beginning um, in early 2018, I suppose editorially, uh, we well, I suppose even, you know, there was the initial idea of being very, very focused on this era. It was never meant to be a biopic. It was never meant to be a lifespanning film. It was very much to look at this era and to try and make sense of why she did what she did because what she did seemed to have caused so much global confusion and backlash. So I suppose so much of our film was about trying to wrong the right of that and, and uh, look and, and really try and look at the cause and effect of how she ended up in 1992 in that situation. So from the very beginning and from that very first page that I brought to John as an idea, it was always that. So I suppose so much of the writing process was really trying to interrogate how we wanted to um, deep dive into that part of her story, which obviously brought up lots of complexities. And, um, you know, it, it was, you know, and I suppose even with like, I mean, the whole way through, I suppose from the very get go, because we were so focused on what we wanted to look at and say, when we did the interview with Sinead in 2019, it was also incredibly focused in on that. Um, 
point of her life um, and that part of the story that when we got that back, I remember very clearly with Ellie, um, we printed the entire interview out and cut it all up uh, analog style on the floor and really blocked out the entire story as, as we saw it happening and turned it into a script um, so that we could then, you know, that, that that's, I think that was one of the very first layers that, that we had in our timeline was this um, interview scripted out as we wanted the entire film to play out. And then we were able to work out what we needed all around that spine, because it really was the spine of the film. We hadn't, I suppose, even when we began in 2018, we hadn't realised how important that interview would be. And um, when when we were granted it, um, you know, to be able to hear Sinead talking um, from this contemporary point of view back on all of what happened, it became extremely apparent that um, it was the film, actually, as somebody who's had her voice so greatly reduced by the press for so many years, just letting her speak continuously, nearly for 97 minutes, was the film. And that's, and then we wanted to hang all of our other contributor interviews and uh, uh, talk shows and any other period within the film where she's speaking. It was all, I suppose, hooks that hung off this master interview and and the script that that we'd created and and the narrative story of it all. Um, brilliant. I, well, I want to drill even further into some of the story mechanics of that because that you know the scene where she's at uh, you know Dylan's anniversary concert and and Christopherson is there kind of you know uh, you know introducing her and then you know comforting her in, in the aftermath and that, and that imagery is so striking of the kind of not only the imagery, but the sound, which she described so vividly in that interview, you know, the combination of sort of booing and cheering, and you can just see the sort of pain rippling over her face. And then what I think is so elegant about the story construction is you set that up at the beginning and we know to some extent we're on the Titanic, right? Like you're you're waiting, you know, as you're getting this sort of origin story and this meteoric rise, you're waiting with this intense kind of tension for the, you know, for the for the fall, so to speak. Um, and then by the time we get there, we understand it with such greater, um, I guess, contextual and human and humanitarian empathy and love. Um, I, I, that footage is so powerful. Powerful. Um, talk about how you structured the use of archival and the audio-only interviews, and talk about the choice of audio-only interviews, which I think is super interesting. Um, how you are interweaving the two of those as you're constructing the narrative arc? Absolutely. I mean, okay. So I think a couple of things really. I mean, because again, the interview with Sinead was one of the very first elements that we got. And from the offset, it was always going to be an audio-only interview. I think that just set the direction for the rest of the interviews um, from our contributors. I'm also I'm not a fan of talking heads. I've, I'm not against anybody else using them. It's just a personal thing. I, I'm not a fan of them. But more importantly than that, I, what I didn't want was the viewer to be dragged in and out of this very immersive era that we were trying to create because it is Sinead telling her story beat by beat up to that moment what I didn't want is you yet to see like a you know a contemporary Chuck D in a studio in LA while when we're really talking about like 1989 you know and I yes I think that was one of the biggest drivers 
for not using any talking heads in the film because we just wanted you to be there and to feel it and to be with her and to get in the intensity of what's happening. So that that creatively was a big decision. Um, and then also COVID happened <laughs> in the middle of it. I think we were uh, two years into production when it happened right bang in the middle. And um, yeah, uh, you know, it, I think at one point we considered maybe creating like beautiful portraits of each of our uh, contributor in one of the locations that had been very potent for the story where something had happened. But I'm so glad we didn't do that, actually. And I'm so glad we chose just to keep it in the era. So that was a big part of that. And I think a lot of it, too, for me, you know, the, you know and I need to talk about Mick Mahon, our incredible editor, who was my absolute um, wingman uh, throughout the year that we had together. Um, finalizing the film really when we finally got into production in 2021 you know we just worked so closely together obviously for that whole year and so many of the decisions the creative decisions that are in the film are just from conversations we were just firing back and forth at each other our ideas we were just firing back and forth at each other because it was covid and it was during one of the worst parts we couldn't be in the same room so he was in west cork in Ireland and I was over in England and uh, Michael the producer was in Belfast and Ellie was in Brighton and we were all completely separate throughout that whole year which was tough but what I really loved about the process as it was my first feature um, was working remotely with Mick you know I'd obviously been I've been working in uh, documentary for like 10 years and shorts and I was so used to being in the room but there was something really special about the way that we worked together during that period uh, separately and that we would have these epic three-hour shouty chats every morning where we, we both talk far too quickly and far too much and both of us were just having these really impassioned creative chats every morning and we'd be like right okay that's what we're going to do he'd go off in the afternoon and edit like mad and then send me what we discussed in the evening which I'd watch and then we did again the next morning and it was just like this very I don't know I just, I just really loved that process together because it just felt really vital and we were listening mostly <laughs> to each other and then it just slowly and it, it, I think what it probably did is it took longer than it probably would normally have because we'd be in the room and it would be a much quicker process but luckily um Ellie and Michael had given us a long edit for this, which I'm so grateful that we did have. It took longer than we'd even planned for so many reasons. And um, yeah, it was just this creative, uh, just these like, really impassioned conversations every day that I think, and, and Nick was amazing because he's the same age as Sinead, had grown up in Dublin, was in all the bands at the same time in 80s Dublin. And he was able to bring so much authenticity you know, for me being like 15 years younger than them all, you know, I could only imagine, you know, what what, what was all happening. I think just having Nick being like, this is what it looked like, these are the clubs, this is where she was playing this, you know what I mean? It just created such a buzz. Um, uh, yeah, it was it was a real, honestly, it was a real honour to work with him. So yeah, so I just think, but yeah, what I was going to say on that is the creative choices. I, I think from the off, uh, my work as a filmmaker, I was very interested in creating a tapestry. I wanted to create, yeah, this visual tapestry where the archive spoke to the to what we were obviously hearing and the VOs, which then bounced off some of the recon. Don't like that word, but it kind of is what it is. Dream like or dream sequences is what we call them, um, you know. And it's just like this constant 
bounce off each other um you know very very considered bounces but it was really about creating this visual tapestry which i think also was reflective of the era you know so we wanted the visuals that we created to be reflective of that i suppose mtv era to a point and and obviously a big homage to the incredible director john mavery and his iconic uh work that 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 he made i think he did 12 of the music videos that that Sinead was in from that era and yeah I think I've gone off on a tangent. <laughs> no, it's 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 beautiful. Um, the the it's it's I'm glad that that's where you went because I think the editorial in this is so masterful and and I think that there's a couple elements that that make it and I want to just put a finer point on on some of the things that you said. Like one, right from the outset, you know, in the sort of opening credits, you do get this um kind of avant garde throwback early MTV vibe, which was the visual grammar and language in which that's the context, right? In which sort of she exploded into the, you know, the world's collective consciousness. And I loved the, the, um, it just had such an instantaneous vibe to it, you know, editorially right out of the gate. And and then I, and then on the point that you were making vis-a-vis -vis the kind of immersive nature of it, I think why those audio-only interviews are so powerful is you never end up breaking the spell of the era, right? Because like she was such an iconic character who had such specific iconography in terms of the way she was photographed, the sort of the 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 sort of just badass punk rock look that she cultivated herself and then the way the images were captured and yeah. that is pressed in time and kind of like that is the image that all of us you know sort of know and love and remember um or or those that you know were outraged like that's that's the iconography of her of her look and feel and so the choice to do that leaves you so embedded in that um time and look, you know, which was so uh, provocative and original and arresting. And it's striking also, you know, you note this in the film, but how prescient she was and how, you know, three decades ahead of, you know, kind of everything. It's, it's, it's so interesting to now, you know, revisit, to, to visit your film and revisit her story in light of a, it's become, you know, we don't need to dwell on this, but like it ends up being this incredible elegy for her now that she's no longer with us. And, and B it's, you know, I'm a big believer that we understand who we are as human beings by telling stories. And it's only through telling them and retelling them that we are able to culturally digest these things. And oftentimes you need that distance and you need that time. And, and I think it was so, you know, beautifully, beautifully done. Um, Go into the uh, go into the original photography, or and I too hate the word reconstructions, and or you know what, whatever 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 the the current language is. But like you did manage to very elegantly, you and and Mick managed to very elegantly make everything shake hands with e, e, all the elements shake hands in a very deft and effective way. How were you kind of? You know, to what extent were you cutting, then scripting the original photography that you were going to shoot, and then going back and repurposing it? Or talk about that process a little bit, because I think it was very elegantly woven. Thank you. Um, yes, uh, yes, that's actually a very good point because we pretty much had a soft lock before we shot the footage, so we edited the entire film 
using our uh yeah our vo our archive um and we knew where the gaps were so everything that was shot was super purposeful there was barely a drop that wasn't used um of footage uh because we knew exactly what we needed and the big reason for shooting anything was because we had these gaps we had about a 30 percent gap um because it wasn't a biopic and it isn't a birth to today story um we only had what, what was available from really 1989 to 1993 because that's where we wanted to cut it off. So whilst you would have hoped there would be masses of footage of her, there actually isn't that much from that period, which is a bit gutting really. Um, you know, a couple of uh, beautifully filmed concerts, uh, quite a few uh, talk or talk shows, uh, mostly American talk shows, some, some Irish. Um, beautiful photography, but not masses. There's very, very little like candid, um, candid like BTS footage at all, um, and certainly nothing of uh, the Ireland that she grew up in, uh, you know, with her in it. So um, that's presented quite quickly. I mean, I always wanted to shoot something, so it wasn't that it was purely for that reason. I always wanted to be able to bring another layer into what we were creating visually uh, for the style of filmmaking that we were attempting to do but I didn't realize how much we'd have to do and um yes so it was really whenever we were very late in the process I'd say in the final the final couple of months uh was when, was when we shot and it was a, a week shoot in Dublin so it was yeah it was maybe like sorry like five or six days and it was really trying to bring the childhood to life, but as carefully and as sensitively as humanly possible. It's obviously a very famously, very tumultuous childhood that she had. Um, so I wanted to deal with that with total respect. And uh, I suppose there's various routes we could have gone, which we avoided like the plague, you know, and um, just wanted to create, I suppose, my uh, imagining of what she was telling us. So it's not literal, it's my interpretation of a story that I'm being told, as opposed to saying this is what happened to Sinead. Um, so it, it was it was a very careful approach. Uh, how, how big was the production apparatus? Like, you know, is it sort of small indie feature style, you know, sort of uh, crew? And, and like, talk about some of the specific choices, whether it's, you know, you know, you're going to go to the interview where she's wearing the green shirt so that you're going to build the, the you know, the, the, okay. the footage that you yeah. shoot accordingly to, like, make them tie together. Talk about some of the specifics of those choices and what kind of apparatus you had, you know, around you yeah. to, to to do that. I'd say it's a pretty, pretty small shoot comparatively. I mean, for even, you know, I've worked in advertising for years, certainly the smallest shoot I'd been on for many years. Um, so we were very limited by our budgets and how we could approach it. So a lot of it was very small scenes um, and a very small crew, uh, bigger than your average um, documentary shoots, but definitely a lot smaller than shoots that I've been on. Um, I think we had to be very resourceful. I suppose so much of it for me was about the fine details of things, as you've mentioned, like the T-shirt she was wearing, or even there's a scene where she does her amazing Grammy appearance and she's wearing her son's baby grow on his, on her jeans and she's got a little um, patch saying his name, Jake, as uh, patched onto her jeans. And it was all those little details that I wanted to get absolutely bang on because I knew that we needed 
um, transitions from from scenes that we had nothing for uh, into these bigger scenes. But it was all these little details and my my background um, had actually been in fashion. So I think <laughs> I had a very keen eye for picking out all of these aesthetic choices and how we could use those as direct um, links into the scenes that we were trying to get to. Um, and then I suppose also part of it was a bit of a homage to John Mabry and his beautiful filmmaking and how to be able to, again, even dare to... Um, emulate some of what he created and bringing it back into our story particularly around uh Sinead as a little girl um in our documentary so that was also terrifying <laughs> but um, luckily it's all gone down well with John um, he's amazing um yeah I just think there was I mean I I had reference boards the size of my of, of the edit suite I had so many visual ideas that I was trying to work through and work out and what was appropriate and what and what wasn't and it really it, it wasn't wasn't a simple process and I think because you know Mick had never cut a film where he didn't have the rushes the main rushes until the very last month so you know we all were really trying to work our way out in the dark um but yeah I mean I just think it was a critical layer to be able to look more at the nuance of this of, of what we were saying in the story and so much of the film of course Sinead is the protagonist and it's her story but we're hanging off her story the story of Ireland and mm -hmm. why it's and the story of Ireland that spawned Sinead and you know you know look, we're looking at uh, deeply looking at the transgenerational trauma so I suppose so much of what I was filming was trying to make sure that those references uh visual metaphors were, were peppered throughout so that you could either consciously or subconsciously um, keep on track with the story that we were trying to tell. Well, speaking of Russia's, it was so interesting to see the, you know, the dailies um, from 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 John's work and, and, and like, you know, whether it's the like clapperboard or whatever else. And it, it sort of suddenly enables you to see that material. And and I thought that was such a moving and striking piece where, you know, he uh, sort of acknowledges the fact, oh, this isn't my direction. This isn't my cinematography. This is just her kind of like pouring out and, you know, the 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 haunted and um, I guess just incredibly powerful and potent, you know, eyes and, and the look on her face. And it was, uh, a, once again, a beautiful, like recontextualization of this, you know, iconic work that we know. I thought that, that, that was a real score to have, to have access. How did you, how did you dig up the dailies for those? Well, thinking again, John to partake took many years. I think I had to write him a letter in the end. Um, but he, uh, Yes, it took about two and a half years, maybe three, to convince him to do it. And then we did our interview and he couldn't have been more fantastic and generous and amazing. He was in a, he lives in Italy and he did the, the, the interview like this under like a duvet uh, to try and create a good sound chamber uh, for our film in the middle of rural Italy. I mean, he was, he was amazing. And um but I suppose the uh, yeah the the dailies or the rushes um, were the property of of the record label um, of Blue Raincoat. So quite early on, we'd obviously reached out to them about all of the music videos um, and asked if we could get them. Which again took a long time because of COVID and all the archive houses, including theirs, were completely shut and nobody could go in. So we had to wait 
quite a while to actually see them, but we were delighted when we did. Um, and yeah, just seeing this like, yeah, all this iconic imagery. I actually went and visited that park um, in, in August. I was in France and I went and I did a little pilgrimage there and left her some flowers. And it was just amazing to actually see it and look at it through John's eyes and how he shot what he did and all of that iconic, you know, the statues and the leaf and, oh, it was really, <laughs> it was emotional, but also it really tapped into my, like, you know, my late teenage self who was desperate to be a filmmaker who idolised John Mabry and getting to just be in that park. I highly recommend anybody to go and do that if they're a big fan of either the video or of his. It was really magical. I love the, uh, the 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 pilgrimage. I'm a big believer in it and sort of do those wherever I go to those figures. And there's there is just something that is um uh I guess haunting and moving about about you know when you actually are sort of walking through the place that that you know has 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 haunted your imagination prior to that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was well worth the trip. <laughs> it's fabulous. Last two questions for you. What was the process of um, screening the film for her, for the team? Like, uh, when do they finally see it? And and sort of with what trepidation, you know, do you approach that? And tell us the, tell us the story. Paint us a picture because you do it very vividly. Yeah, well, um, Sinead uh, didn't actually see it. Sinead was offered to see it very early on. Well, before it went to Sundance, of course, and before we locked the edits. Um but very kindly and nicely said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to sit through it all again. But she was incredibly behind it and very proud of it, but didn't want to sit through it, which I think was actually a very sensible thing to do. I don't think I'd want to sit through a very tumultuous period of my life either. So I thought that was, you know, that was a great thing. Her team were shown it, I'd say, uh, I think probably about this time, two, three years ago, like four months before Sundance, we did a screening and that was terrifying. <laughs> but it certainly was. Uh, we, we went to a screening room in Soho in London, but we, we, we'd all been in touch. Like we, we really did work on it as a team from John um, being one of our EPs, John Reynolds, um, who literally is, you know, Sinead's best friend in the world. Um, and Lucy Pullen, um, who worked closely with John. Um, yeah, I mean, we just, again, it was the height of COVID. It was masked. You know, we were in a tiny little screening room in Soho. And yeah, that that was a really big moment. Um, yeah, they loved it. Lots of Great. questions, lots of questions, queries about bits and bobs, but overall, extremely positive. So it was a really good first screening um which we were yeah I think that I think that was the biggest thing we had to overcome and we knew that if John was happy Sinead would be happy because she trusted him so implicitly um so yeah that that was a big step but yeah I mean that there was just so much was going on at that point because of course then we um we're trying to get the edits together to submit it to Sundance which we did um and then, of course, like everybody had to wait for months to find out if it had made it or not. Um, and, you know, that was a huge moment finding out that we'd got it in there. My goodness, it had been a real pipe dream the whole way through. But we just, yeah, you know, you, you, 
you, you just never know how anything's going to turn out. And I think for us, really, yeah, there was a lot of tears. I remember a lot of tears on that Zoom call because um, we were just so thrilled. But then, unfortunately, it was a few weeks later that we got the terrible news that um, we couldn't use the song. So we had a huge process. Yeah, it just yeah, it was one of many bumps that uh, came our way. So, yeah. A, a moment of just like absolute fucking outrage, by the way, that you couldn't use the song. And and I, I mean, I literally my like blood was boiling when I walked out of the screening, putting myself in your shoes. Uh, so I don't know if you want to say anything more about that, but I, I certainly I certainly felt the rage and frustration for you. Yeah, well, it wasn't ideal. Um, no, I mean, it's all I always because uh, we're very careful about saying the wrong thing. It's all on billboard for any listeners that want to find out the reasoning behind. But unfortunately, um, it was very much, uh, you know, Sinead's memoir had come out, um, I think, four months before the film, no, maybe six months and oh yeah there's just a, a, a historic rift between Prince and Sinead um, that had been written about again and unfortunately it wasn't allowed in our film. <laughs> um, we had of course asked uh, about it um, the year and a half before we even got to that stage and wrongly thought that everything was fine um, so it was a huge shock and you know what it created a massive creative challenge for the team and I, uh, especially very late in the day. Um, but what we just had to do was pull together and work out how to literally save the film. That scene for me was the beating heart of the entire film as we were deep diving into the uh, the loss of her mother, which was the driving force for nearly all of it. And, you know, she'd famously talked about the tear, the tear that had drawn everybody to her, this mirror, mirror tear uh, being, you know, it, you know, it was that tear that created such a sensation around the world, but that tear had been about this trauma and this loss and um, the loss of her childhood. And, we, you know, and as you mentioned, we've been given access to this beautiful, never seen before, the rushes of nothing compares to you. So having, you know, for me, it was everything. It was the kind of linchpin of the, all of the story, from the, the before and the after. So we certainly weren't going to lose it, but it was how to save it and keep the narrative beat completely intact whilst losing every single drop of, of the music. We weren't even allowed to use the opening bars of her version of the song. And we had to be extremely careful that it wasn't in any way um, it wasn't in any way uh, recognisable. So, yes, I worked with Mick, the editor. I worked with John Reynolds, who obviously had 30 years of Sinead's stems and recordings and uh, B-sides and everything. He had it all there. We worked very closely with the film's composers, uh, Linda and Irene Buckley. And we just had to pull together over the Christmas holidays that year to try and work out how to keep the, the very pure essence of what was being, what we wanted the viewer to feel in that scene intact. So what we did was um, go through the, her songs. And I suppose a big thing for me is because it was about grief and really the whole film for me is a meditation on grief, but that scene particularly was, um, I wanted her to sound, I wanted it to sound like keening I don't know if you know what the word keening, you do know what the word keening means, but it's an old Irish um, tradition where the women 
would come together at a uh, at a funeral and they would cry they would make these really uh, deep bellied cries of grief together collectively and there'd be like a, a keener that would keep the group uh, keening together a bit like the women um in the middle east like a very visceral cry and um yeah i suppose what i wanted to do and actually what i did do a bit in mather the film that i made in this graduate this great graduation film many moons ago was to attempt that um and even the visuals within mather are very similar to that scene that we ended up cutting and nothing compares where it's this interplay of the raw emotion of what you're seeing from Sinead and this like keening like cry by using by cutting up and using stems of other songs of this cry over that scene and miraculously and it was a flip of a miracle it worked and people you know I mean that was you know it was it was, it was a horrifying <laughs> situation to be in because of all of that but then it didn't seem to affect the film miraculously not only did it work, but in some ways it almost made it more powerful. Sometimes the absence can be as powerful as the presence. And I just thought that was like, and also just a beautiful articulation of the challenges that you often face in, in, in nonfiction, right? I mean, I guess any kind of filmmaking, but I think is kind of acute to nonfiction. And it was just beautifully uh, navigated and, um, you know, incredibly well done. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, and thank you so much for the beautiful film. It's absolutely amazing. Thank you so much. Lovely to be, lovely to chat to you. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Appreciate you. Take care. Yeah, you too. Cheers. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thank you to Catherine for her raw and moving film. Thank you to Sinead for her voice, her words, and her life. Thank you to all those who collaborated with and helped and supported Catherine along the way. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please, don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>